Okay, I'm going to pray for us briefly. Father, thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together. We thank you for the gift of your word, God, that you have given to us that we might know you. As we've heard already, that we might know you and come before you to rejoice in your presence. We pray, O oh God, that your word would be illumined by your spirit today, that we might know you more. And that the more that we know you, God, the more that we would rejoice in your presence. We pray that we would make much of your son today. For your name's sake, we pray in his name. Amen. James Smith in You Are What You Love begins his book with this simple and yet probing question. What do you want? Smith states that this question is actually what lies underneath of all of Jesus' questions to his disciples and to us. Will you follow me? Do you want to give up what you were doing and come after me? Do you want to live as I live? Or what about this? Do you love me? Do you desire me? Do you want me from the core of who you are? Do you love me? Again, Smith says this. Jesus doesn't encounter Matthew and John or you and me and ask, what do you know? He doesn't even ask, what do you believe? He asks, what do you want? Our wants, our longings, our desires at, are at the core of our identity, Smith says. They are the wellspring from which our actions and behaviors flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. As we come to Leviticus chapter 3 this morning, we're going to see that the peace offering is all about our heart. It's all about what we want and what we love and what we desire. As we look into Leviticus chapter 3, we're going to see that the peace offering was the only offering in the sacrificial system that was optional rather than mandatory. It was the only offering that was to be offered freely from the heart without obligation, persuasion, or demand. Now, before we jump into Leviticus chapter 3, as we have done in the weeks prior, we want to think a little bit about the word that is translated before us, peace offering. It comes from this Hebrew word, shalamim, which is from the root word shalom, which is most oftentimes translated peace. But here's the thing. This Hebrew word shalom, this word peace that we often see in our Old Testaments, it means far more than just the absence of turmoil or war, which is oftentimes how we think about peace. We're in a time of peace and not a time of war. But this word means health, it means prosperity, it means abundance and a relationship of peace with God. It brings about rejoicing. It's a cause for festivities, and it testifies to the fullness of a life lived in covenantal fellowship with God. Leviticus chapter 3 is all about the peace offering. It's all about this final phase of the worship service. It's all about a joyful celebration of this life lived in covenantal fellowship with God. And so as we begin to look at this, we want to think about that. And that brings us to our big idea this week. This week's big idea is simply this. The purpose, the purpose of forgiveness and devotion to God is fellowship with God. The purpose of forgiveness and devotion to God is fellowship 
with God. I think so often we are very good about forgiveness, about what it means to be forgiven by God, how we can be forgiven by God. And sometimes, though, we leave that as the end and the goal, as if just being forgiven was the purpose and the goal of our life. But forgiveness, friends, is a means to an end, and God himself is that end. The presence and glory of God, joyful celebration in the presence of God, is the purpose of forgiveness and devotion to God. With that, we're going to read Leviticus chapter 3. This can be found on page 82 in the black Bibles around you. Leviticus chapter 3. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering. If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the loins and the long lobe of the liver, that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of his offering, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then, from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as, food, as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, at the loins and the long lobe of the liver, that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and lay his hand on its head, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, at the loins and the long lobe of the liver, that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Now, I don't want to jump into it, but if we're going to look a little bit in Leviticus chapter 7 as well to get a fuller picture of what's going on in this offering. And one of the things that we're going to see in Leviticus 7 is that a portion of this offering was to be placed on the altar and burned or given to God. A portion of this offering was given to the priest, and then a portion of this offering was eaten by the worshiper and his group with him. 
Now, I do want us to look at, you don't have to turn there. We heard it as our Old Testament reading, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 11 through 12. And this is just to fill out our understanding of what's going on in this offering before we look at various aspects and implications of it. But here in Deuteronomy 12, verses 11 and 12, we read this. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose. To make his name dwell there, you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. In just a minute, we're going to hear that the vow offering was one of three types or one of three reasons that somebody could offer a peace offering. So when you hear vow offering right now, understand that this is referring to this peace offering. And so this peace offering, this vow offering, was the last offering in the worship service. And then it gives way to this in verse 12. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your town since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Now, the thing that I want us to see and the reason that we went here in Deuteronomy before we lipped into Leviticus 3 is that this is the whole purpose. This is where everything is going. And this is what the peace offering brought about for the worshiper. The climax of the worship experience was joy, celebration, festivity in the presence of God. And so we're going to see that today as we continue. Now, I told you that there were three types of peace offerings that could be offered. Three different occasions that somebody could bring a peace offering to the Lord. You can find this in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, and then in verse 16. We're not going to read it right now. But these three types of offering were a thanksgiving offering, a vow offering that we just heard about, and then a free will offering. A thanksgiving offering was a peace offering that could have been given as a sign of thanksgiving to the Lord for him delivering the worshiper out of some undesirable situation. Now, this undesirable situation could have been from without. There could have been turmoil with somebody from within Israel, something going on that was bringing about the situation that was not good. It could have been that there were armies coming against God's people. It could have been a number of things, external forces, that bring about some undesirable situation. Or it could have been internal forces. It could have been the worshiper's own sin that brought about an undesirable situation. And this thanksgiving offering would be offered to God for his deliverance, salvation from that situation. The next offering we heard about when we read in Deuteronomy is the vow offering. A peace offering could have been given to the Lord when some vow was completed. Again, Gordon Wenham in his commentary on Leviticus states this, in difficult circumstances, Men of old often made a vow to the Lord that if he helped them, they would do something for God. When they fulfilled their vow, they were expected to bring a peace offering. I remember doing this. I I wasn't a Christian. I didn't grow up in a Christian home or any of that. Uh, And this will give you a little insight into my background. But I was at this party in high school one time, and the cops showed up. And I remember saying, God, if you get me out of this, I'll never do anything like this again. That was a vow. Guess what? God got me out of it. I didn't keep my end of the vow. I definitely didn't offer a peace offering. But that's sort of the idea of a vow offering. 
So that when somebody said, now, now devoted people, it was important to them, devout followers of the one true God, God, if you get me out of this, if you do this for me, then I will do that. And once they fulfilled their vow, they would come to God and offer him a peace offering in the form of a vow offering. Now the third one is probably the most common of the occasions for a peace offering. And, and the most common, and I think it's at the very heart of the peace offering. This is the free will offering. This was a peace offering that could be given to God as a spontaneous act of the worshiper based on and prompted by the goodness of God. It doesn't tell us what kind of God's goodness. It could be anything. Anything could have prompted this. Now, what I love about this aspect of the peace offering is this. It tells us that God has put no limits upon the reasons and seasons that his people should come and have joyful fellowship with their God, that they should come and rejoice before their God. God wants us to know this morning, I'm not putting any limits on the reasons that you should come before me in my presence and celebrate with joy. This tells us of the boundless, unending, unmatched, and unimaginable love and grace of our God. We're reminded by this fact, friends, that God is an eternally and infinitely full and abundant source of joy and goodness, which then overflows in a limitless ability and desire to share that with his people. God has put no limits no restrictions on what sort of things could prompt you to say, hey, you know what? Man, God has been good to me. I'm going to call up a bunch of my buddies from church and get some families together. You know what we're going to do? We're just going to have a giant party celebrating God's goodness. Why? Why, why might we do that? Well, I don't know. Any reason. Maybe you were reading your Bible and the beauty of God in his word is just, it's overwhelmed your heart and you're like, man, God is good. And God says, okay, that's great. That's an occasion to celebrate. Get your people together. Make some bread. Get out the fruit of the cup. Do whatever it is that you do and just celebrate God in his presence. Maybe you're just really happy to go to a good church. God says, that's great. Why don't you then come before me in my presence and celebrate Maybe for some of you, it's just the sound of the leaves blowing in fall. The colors of the leaves are changing, and you just go, oh my God is an amazing artistic creator. God says, that's reason enough to celebrate. Or for some of you, it could be the love of your family and friends. Maybe God has delivered you for, from some trial. Or maybe God has given you a job that allows you to provide for yourself and your family. Or, 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 it just goes on. The free will peace offering tells us that every occasion is a warranted occasion to celebrate the overabundant love and goodness of God. Have you ever just found yourself going, man, this little thing, this little thing is just a sign that God loves me. We're reminded, aren't we, in the small, the still, quiet voice that God loves us. And God wants you to know that nothing, nothing is too small or insignificant of a reason to justify celebrating his goodness in the presence of those who love him. Come together. God wants us to be a happy, joyful, and celebratory people. By placing no limits on the seasons or reasons for the peace offering, 
God is making it known that it is his desire. We're we're talking about our desires in the peace offering and our loves. Well, it's God's desire for his people to come often and to come freely and to rejoice in his presence because of his goodness. Now, with the three occasions for the peace offering uh, behind us, we're now going to look into Leviticus 3, and we want to look at various aspects and then the implications of this peace offering. The first thing that we want to notice right away from Leviticus chapter 3 and verse 1 is that the peace offering was optional. It wasn't mandatory. Verse 1, if, if his offering... Other offerings we hear when, when we hear about the sin offerings, it's if he sins in this way, then he shall command, offer this. This one is optional. It's an optional offering. Now, that's because the peace offering was to be given freely from the heart. It's interesting, isn't it? What a person does when they're not required to do something reveals their heart, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, if you ever read in your Bible, now we've been here, and I've been loving Leviticus. I was sitting with Phil and Adam just a little bit ago, a couple, few days ago, and I said, man, Adam, I don't know about you, but I'm geeked out about Leviticus right now. Like, I'm just loving this book. And Adam looked at me like, okay. So I think he's getting geeked out too. Now, but what's interesting is we've been seeing all the glory and all that God designed in these offerings, but have you ever read, maybe in the book of Psalms or elsewhere, when God says, I despise your offerings? I loathe your offerings. Why? It was a matter of their heart. Now, what's interesting about the free will offering is it can reveal to us the faithfulness and the heart condition of the other offerings. What do I mean? We have required offerings, purification, trespass, ascension, and tribute offerings. These were all required. Now, if they were offered with the necessary heart condition of faith and trust and rejoicing in God, then the worshiper would naturally desire the final stage of that. I want, I've done all of this, God, so that I can have you. That would be the natural outflow if these were offered with the right kind of heart. However, if these mandatory offerings were merely given to check the box of religious duty so that then the person could go on living their life the way they wanted to without the fear of God's punishment, then this offering that was to be given freely from the heart that was not necessary would seem like that, an unnecessary obligation. I don't need to do it. I don't want to do it. And that would reveal that the rest of the offerings probably were not offered with the right heart condition. Now, obviously, there are circumstances that keep people from doing those sort of things, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about the fact that something that is not required, what you do when you're not required to, will reveal your heart. And we have to be careful, don't we, loved ones? This can so easily happen in the church. It's so easy for us to think of Sunday church attendance as that required sacrifice, that required offering. We're reminded over and over again that it is a command not to forsake the gathering together. But how many of us are willing and how many of us actually desire that weekly fellowship of home groups or getting together on other occasions with believers or setting aside times like Saturday mornings for the study of God's word or whatever it may be, these things that maybe, as we think about our church life, don't seem to have the same requirement that Sunday does. What we do when we're not required reveals our heart. The next thing that we want to notice in Leviticus chapter 3 in the peace offering is this. The peace offering reveals that joyful fellowship with God can only be had by those who are ritually clean. 
and dedicated to serving God. Joyful fellowship with God. And when we talk about ritually clean, what we're talking about is your sin is dealt with. Joyful fellowship with God can only happen if your sin is dealt with and your life has been dedicated to God. Remember the order of the worship service. The first thing that was done was the sin offering. If you were going to get to this joyful, celebratory uh, fellowship in God's presence, the first thing that had to be dealt with was sin. As a matter of fact, listen to the words of Leviticus 7.20. The person who eats of the flesh of the Lord's, of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offering, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. That's a very stern statement. If you try to come into the presence of God and celebrate and rejoice in God's presence and your sin hasn't been dealt with, then the holiness of God dictates that you're cut off from your people and banished from God's presence. As I was reading that, it just, it, it struck me. Do we think that sin is a big deal? God does. God really does. It's such a big deal that if we try to rejoice and enjoy God's fellowship without our sin being dealt with, God says, you are cut off from my presence. We live in a world and a culture that oftentimes tells us, well, don't worry about sin. Don't talk about sin. But here's the thing. It is so unloving not to do that because what we should desire for people is not that they line up and march to the same beat that we do and live the same sort of external moral life that we do. But if you're going to love somebody, then you're going to desire for them to enjoy God's presence, to be with him, to be filled with him. That's the most loving thing that you could ever tell anybody about. And so sin being dealt with, remember, is not the end. We've made it the end too often. It's the end. Just you need to be forgiven, therefore you won't go to hell. What about this? You need to be forgiven so that you can enjoy God. You've been created for God. Now, the next thing that we want to look at is that not only, not only do you need your sin dealt with, but to enjoy fellowship with God, you must be dedicated to God. I'm going to read from Leviticus chapter 3 and verse 2. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And I remember reading through this, and it's just like, what in the world is this all about? And why do we need to know where he's throwing the blood? Now remember, though, that when the worshiper would come and lay his head on the hands of the animal, it wasn't the transference of sin. It was that now the animal actually represented the worshiper. That's what the laying on of hands ritual was here. And so the animal now represents the worshiper. After this, the animal was killed. And the blood of the animal, now the blood represents life. This is why as you read through your Bible, there's a prohibition on eating the food while the blood's still in it. Because in the blood was the life of the animal. So the blood represents the life. The animal now represents the worshiper. The animal is killed. And then what happens? The priests take the blood, which represents the life, and they throw it on the side of the altar. So here's the question. What was the altar? The altar was the place of continual 
service to God. Remember, offerings were offered up day and night. The altar was the realm where there was continual service to God. So what we see here is that for the animal to have his hand, the the worshiper lays his hands on the animal. Now the animal represents the worshiper. Then the animal is killed and the blood, which represents the life of the worshiper, is thrown onto that place where there is continual devotion to God, symbolizing that the worshiper's life is now devoted continually to the service of God. It's only after this ritual of dedication to God that the Lord's portion of the peace offering can be placed upon the altar. It's only after this ritual of dedication to God that you could finally progress to the end, share a meal with God, this celebratory fellowship of joy in God's presence. This reminds us of something, that sin and a lack of dedication to God will keep us from enjoying fellowship with God. Sin and a lack of dedication to God will keep you from enjoying fellowship with God. Or we could state it differently. Sin and a lack of dedication to God are the joy-robbing, fellowship-draining enemies of your soul. I wonder if we think about that. Man, I've been busy. I can't dedicate that much time to God. That, that lack of dedication to God or that sin that you might find yourself caught in, it's not going to bring you joy. Sometimes we think that way. We get caught up in the fleeting pleasure of sin. That sin or that lack of dedication to God will rob you of your joy. It's like a leech on your soul. In his book, classic book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, Lewis says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, Lewis says. So we ask ourselves, are we trading a life of making mud pies and forgetting that God has offered us all of this? Third, we want to notice that the peace offering demonstrates that joyful fellowship with God requires giving the best parts of ourself to God. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but when we were reading through Leviticus chapter 3, we saw the same thing that we saw in the ascension offering which is the fact that the offering was to be made of an unblemished animal. Which is to say, when you went to pick out what you were going to offer to the Lord, you were going to pick out the best of what you had. Okay? Now, I want to read for you chapter 3, verse 16. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma, and then this, all fat is the Lord's. When we're reading through that, we're like, man, why are they so focused on the fat? Like the fat of this and the fat of that and all the fat. God gets the fat. And you're like, well, great. We trim the fat off of our meat. Like, so we're just trimming and giving God the left. Not at all. In this culture, the fat was the finest portion, the best part. Listen to Genesis 45, 18. Now, this is when Pharaoh is talking to Joseph and telling Joseph to bring his family from Egypt. He says this, and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the land. See that? The best of the land, the fat of the land mean the same thing. So the fat portion was the best portion, which means that when you gave the fat portion to God in this offering, 
you were giving the best portion of the best animal to God. Now remember, the animal represents who? The worshiper. And so this tells us that what's going on here is what's being symbolized is that the worshiper is to give the best, the very best of himself to God. And I wonder how easy it is for us to get up or, or, or to get caught up with giving so much of ourselves, the very best part of ourselves to so many things other than God. So that by the time we're finished with all these other things in our life, we can feel like there's not much left of any value to give to God. We're so drained. Why? Because we have offered up our best on different altars. How often, how easy is it for us to do this? Now let's get a little personal for all of us. How many of us give the bulk of the best part of ourselves to our careers, to our hobbies, to our favorite sports teams, to our kids' activities, to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And then how many of us feel so spent and tired from these activities that we really feel like, God, I just don't have anything left for you. I would go, but I'm tired. Well, why are we tired? And loved ones, please hear this word. This is not like a, a shame on you point the finger, but hear this word. It's just not worth it. It's not worth it for you. We, we do these things because we think our job and the money we make will satisfy us. We do these things because we think that it will fulfill us, but only God can do that. Only God can fulfill the deepest longings of your heart. Only God can meet the full and deep desires that we have because we have been created in his image. And nothing, nothing else will satisfy. So please don't hear this as a, a finger-wagging rebuke in that sense, but hear it as a plea from somebody who genuinely loves you and is saying, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Next, we want to notice that joyful fellowship with God, what the peace offering was to end with, involves God being your deepest desire. God being your deepest desire. I want to read for you Leviticus chapter 3 and verse 4. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver, that he, that he shall remove with the kidneys. You notice the repeated reference to kidneys? Kidneys is mentioned twice, and that's a clue to us that there's a significance, that it's important. Now we're thinking, well, great, I don't know. Like, who likes to eat kidneys? I... In this culture, though, did you know that the kidneys were understood and referred to as the very seat of our emotions? Where your emotions sprung from, your kidneys were the fountainhead of your desires. Oftentimes, we'll talk about the heart. That's got to come from the heart, not them. They would say, that's got to come from the kidneys. It's talking about the emotions. And so, the kidneys were offered to God to symbolize that the worshiper needs to give God not just their religious duty, not just their religious observance, but their very desires and passions must be God's too. Now, I think there are two implications of this. First, the first one is that we should subject and submit our desires to God's desires, not your will, desire, or not my will, pardon me, not my will or desire, but yours, God, be done. And then the flip side of that, the flip side of submitting your desires to God's desires is that God then must be your desire. If you're going to submit your desire to somebody else's, they must be your ultimate desire. Now here's the thing. Desires are tricky, aren't they? 
It's not like you can just flip a switch on desires. Have you ever been mad at somebody? Upset with a spouse or a friend or whatever it may be or, or a neighbor, I don't know, and really wished that you weren't mad? Like, I think a lot of Christians, we, we do that. Like, I'm upset. I wish I wasn't. And I'm looking for the switch. Like, how do I turn that off? It's just not there. So then, what's the deal with desires? Here's the thing. Desires, the loves of our heart, the passions of our heart, these are formed through repetitive, ritualized practices directed by God, to God, and for God. Rituals and habits will form the desires of your heart. I was thinking about a way to explain this. And I think many of us have probably heard of, have you ever heard of Stockholm Syndrome? This is where someone who's taken hostage, and usually a child, this person is taken hostage, kidnapped, whatever it is, and then after a while, they begin to develop an alliance and feelings for their captor. And one of the reasons for this is they are taken out of their life and all the rituals that make up their life. And now their life is brought over here and all the rituals of their life focus on the captor. And so what happens? Because they're rituals, what they do in life is focused on this person. Person, Eventually they begin to develop an alliance, an allegiance to this person. Rituals shape you, whether for the good or for the bad. This is why it's so important for us for us to build our life around rituals that will shape your desire for God. For instance, these are just off the top of my head this week. Regularly scheduled. Now, before I even say what it is, I want you to hear those words. Regularly scheduled. That's what we mean by ritualized. By routines. Regularly scheduled Bible reading. Do you have a time set aside? And I'm talking about it's on the calendar. I'm not going to miss it to read your Bible. Regularly scheduled prayer to come before God. Regularly scheduled worship services now. In many ways, I'm preaching to the choir right now about that. What about this? Regularly scheduled fellowship outside of just the Sunday service. Regularly scheduled rest, silence, and solitude to meet with God. We need to regularly schedule into our lives uh, a break from our lives to get with God. Otherwise, we will be so shaped and molded by the rat race that we won't even know what hit us. Now, this is important because, as we just heard with this idea of Stockholm Syndrome, the neglect of these rituals will result in the formation of your heart and your desires around whatever else is in their place. There is no neutral in the Christian life. You're being shaped by godly rituals or you're being shaped by other things which are by definition, therefore, ungodly rituals. Now the final thing that we want to look at as an implication, an aspect of this peace offering is that the peace offering was also a pledge and a physical illustration of the joy and the benefits that would be had by those who had peace with God. We heard in our Old Testament reading in Deuteronomy 12.12, that the peace offering was to culminate in this celebratory meal with friends and family, with others who were a part of the covenant community who loved God, who had likewise had peace with God. This meal was more than just a momentary pleasure. The meal was great and you're in the presence of God, but it wasn't just a momentary pleasure. It was a testimony to all that God had promised to bring about for his people. And so as they were together celebrating a part, just a part of what God had promised them, they would get together, have this meal, and by this physical illustration of the blessings of this meal, they were reminded, sealed, and confirmed in God's promise to them. Now, 
as we've looked into Leviticus chapter 3, we've seen, I hope, that the purpose of our forgiveness, at the beginning of the sacrificial service, worship service, the purpose of our devotion, all of that is leading to the purpose of joyful fellowship with God. We've seen that the peace offering was optional, that it could only be offered by those who were ritually clean and devoted to serving God. We've seen that it meant giving the best part of yourself to God, that it involved God getting not just your religious observance, but your desires as well, and that it was a pledge of God's faithfulness to his promised blessings to his people. Friends, we've all been created in God's image. Some of you may be sitting in here today and struggling with the fact that, man, I just feel like I'm, I'm working hard, I'm going about things, I'm doing this, I'm pressing into my job, and I always feel like there's something lacking. That's because we've been created in God's image. And as St. Augustine said, our hearts will be restless until they find rest in God. Rituals, friends, rituals are important. Life-shaping divine gifts. They're going to shape and mold us to live in a certain way. And rituals built around God and his word will shape and mold us in a way where our desires will be for God, to be in his presence. And so we want to encourage you. Have you thought about your life? What are the rituals of your life? What kind of things do you do on a day-to-day basis? And are you purposeful with them, pointing them, directing them to God? Are they directed to you from God's word? But that is by no means the most important part of what we're going to see about this offering. It is always critical to us as Christians to remember, and as we think specifically of the peace offering right now, the most important thing we can do, the most powerful tool for formation that we have to shape our desires is to remember that Jesus Christ is the true and perfect peace offering. That it is Jesus alone who was perfectly clean and pure, who alone was fully dedicated to God, who alone gave the absolute best of himself to God's service, and whose deepest desires and emotions were, were for God and to God. Jesus has done this on our behalf. We do it. Not to earn God's favor, not because we must do this or we can never have fellowship. We do it ultimately to testify to him who has done it for us. So that when you give your best to God, it will always fall short of what's necessary, won't it? I mean, when it comes to us in God, the statement holds true. Your best just ain't good enough. But Jesus' was. Absolutely. When Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, it is finished. It was finished for you, for our sakes. Jesus offered himself up freely without obligation, without persuasion, and without demand. And he did it for us. And so we want to take our remaining time now and we want to think about Jesus as this true and ultimate peace offering. I mean, think about it. Jesus freely and willingly came and he offered himself on our behalf. He didn't have to do that. There was no binding obligation on Jesus to do that. He did it freely. Why? Because his heart was for you. He loved us, and so he came freely. Remember, what you do when you're not obligated to do it reveals your heart. And you know what Jesus did? He left the glories of heaven because without him we were doomed to an existence without this joyful celebration in God's presence. And Jesus wanted for each of us 
to experience that, to know that kind of joy and fellowship that he eternally possessed with the Father. So he freely comes for us. This is why in John 10, 17 and 18, we read this. Jesus says, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have, Jesus says, the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to raise it up again. Jesus came, and he laid down his life of his own accord. And if that doesn't warm your heart with the love of Jesus, then I don't know what will. What about this? Jesus did all that he did in a state of absolute purity and cleanness. Jesus wasn't just ritually clean, but he was totally and perfectly clean. This is what we hear from the author of Hebrews in chapter 4 and verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus did not sin because he was sinless. He was perfectly pure, which means that when he offers himself freely for us, he is clean and pure. And it's that purity, it's that sinlessness, it's that righteousness that is then credited to us by faith in Jesus and is the sole foundation for our celebratory joy in the presence of God. But maybe some of you today are in here and you're just thinking, yeah, I don't know, man. I feel though like I know what Jesus did, but I'm pretty dirty. I've got a lot of baggage and this and that. Jesus has done it for you. And for us to focus on our past or our sin, to be hindered from coming to God in fellowship is actually to make little of Jesus. Jesus has done it for you and he has blown open the floodgates of celebration and joy in the presence of God. Also, by giving himself, Jesus gave the absolute best that could ever be given. Jesus spared nothing of himself, but he offered himself completely in life and in death to God for our sakes. What about Jesus' desires and emotions? You ever think about that? Jesus so deeply desired God and his will that Jesus could say that doing the will of God was like the food that sustained him. Do you remember John chapter 4, verse 34? Jesus' disciples come to him and They're asking about his food, if he's eaten. And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. Doing the will of God was like eating for Jesus. Now, let me me put it this way. When you get hungry, you desire to eat. You need to eat. And if you've gone a day or two without food, it's like the kind of need where you are willing to tear through people, go to the grocery store, people steal, and people kill for this need. Because it's a deep, fundamental, core need. And Jesus said, doing God's will is like eating for me. He desired God with every ounce of who he was. Finally, Jesus has given to his church a celebratory meal, a meal of hope and anticipation, a meal that we take in God's presence and also a meal that causes us to long for more of God's presence. When we eat the Lord's Supper, remember what we're told, we proclaim his death until he comes again. And as we proclaim it until he comes again, we long for him to come again. 
But here's the thing. Jesus hasn't merely given us a meal to eat and celebrate. Jesus has given us himself as our meal to eat and celebrate. When we come to the Lord's table, we come based on the work of Jesus, and we come to feast on the person of Jesus. We come to be satisfied by Jesus in the same way that Jesus was satisfied by the Father. Did you know that Jesus and receiving him and coming to him and feasting on him is the only way that you're going to fulfill that most fundamental, passionate, strong desire of your soul? And in God's grace and kindness, because he loves us, he gives us this meal week in and week out that we might come to Jesus, feast on him, and be satisfied to Jesus. And as he does this, friends, he pledges his faithfulness to us in a tangible way through the Lord's Supper. He gives us, actually, the most powerful pledge he could possibly give. He gives us himself in and through his Son, in and through the supper. It's God's pledge. This is why we read from Revelation chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus told his disciples as he instituted the Lord's Supper that after this, he would not drink from the fruit of the cup again or the fruit of the vine again until he did so with them anew in his Father's kingdom. There is coming a day and we're reminded every single time we take the Lord's Supper when Jesus will return and finally everything that we've ever longed for. Have you ever seen the beaming face of a bride or a groom on their wedding day? Xavier, you're thinking about it, right? The day is coming. All this planning, all this prep, all this money that goes into this, and it's all for this one moment. It's all for that culmination of two becoming one, where the presence of two now become one, and it's everything that you've waited for. It's everything that you long for, and there is a day coming, loved ones, when Jesus will return. He will split the skies, and we will be finally brought into his full presence, and we will see the the groom for which we have waited so long. We will be finely clothed, though our sins made us like scarlet. We will be clothed in the white robes of Jesus' own righteousness, presented before him without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And in that moment, and that moment alone, the deepest longings of your soul will find their fulfillment in the presence of Jesus God calls us, friends, all of human history is ending with a celebratory meal based on God's goodness and in his presence as the fulfillment of our desire. And all of this was made possible by the true and ultimate peace offering, our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the word of God. You are good to us. Thank you for... Leviticus, thank you for hearing about the peace offering. And as we hear about the peace offering, our hearts are led to thank you for Jesus Christ. May your spirit empower your people to testify to him in all that we do. God, we pray, remember your people today in Jesus' name. Amen.